Hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio, and the confusion stops here. I'm going to be talking today about the Feast of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. Now, that was last Friday, of course, but uh, the entire month of June is dedicated to the Sacred Heart of Jesus, and I thought it was about time to uh, pay attention to it, uh, take a, a good look at it, uh, and we're going to do that pretty much the, the whole show today. Going to be looking at the uh, devotion, and we're going to be looking at the uh, the proper prayers and the readings for the feast in the extraordinary form, the feast of the Sacred Heart of Jesus, and then also we're going to look at the um, the Sunday readings for this week that uh, this week began in the extraordinary liturgy with the third Sunday after Pentecost, and those readings and the um, the readings for the uh, feast of the Sacred Heart are actually connected. And so we're going to look at that as well. And then perhaps a little later on in the program, if we have time, we're going to do some uh, kind of a biographical sketch of, of uh, St. Margaret Mary Alacoque, who is most uh, associated with this um, devotion. And also the, um, the classic, uh, the traditional, small-t traditional uh, moral uh, topic for preaching on the third Sunday after Pentecost is the sin of intemperance. And so we're going to look at that as well. Of course, intemperance um, temperance is one of the cardinal virtues. It regulates our appetites. And intemperance uh, is largely connected with eating and drinking. Of course, we, we normally think of intemperance in eating as gluttony. And then we also have intemperance in drink, which is what we're going to uh, focus on today. So lots of stuff coming up. Uh, but to begin with, uh, I'm going to talk about devotion to the Sacred Heart and Really, devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus goes all the way back to the Holy Scriptures. And in the early centuries of the Church, um, we had the fathers of the Church and and the the bishops of the Church uh, hammering out the doctrines, the dogmas, concerning the person of Christ. And um, what the Church formulated for our belief is that Christ is one person, but that he has two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. He is truly God, he is truly man, but he's only one person, one divine person. And through the centuries, as the uh, the saints and, and doctors of the church meditated on this, they came up with, uh, you know, there the, the came to the realization that it was perfectly legitimate to be devoted to Christ in his sacred humanity. And uh, especially, I think, in the Middle Ages, we saw a great devotion to our Lord's passion. And it is from that that saints like, oh, St. Gertrude the Great, or St. Mactilda, of course, uh, the last of the fathers, the great St. Bernard of Clairvaux. And even in my, uh, I want to say my native England, but I was born in California, but uh, you know, my, my heritage is, is English. And, and, and you can see in spiritual writers of the Middle Ages, like uh, Richard of Hampole or Richard Raynal, um, uh, this great devotion to the passion of Jesus that, that then becomes devotion to his wounds and then through St. Bernard, especially through his ho- to his holy face and to his sacred heart. Now, naturally, um, devotion to the sacred heart is uh, today most associated with the uh, little French nun uh, from the 1600s uh, in the order of the visitation, whose name was Margaret Mary Alacoque. And we, like I say, we're going to maybe take a, a look at her you know, biographical sketch later on, if time permits. But uh, for our purposes today, 
we know that uh, St. Margaret Mary, uh, or when Margaret Mary, she's not saying yet, um, according to her custom, it was during the octave of Corpus Christi that she was deeply engaged in devotions uh, before the Blessed Sacrament. She was very devoted to our Lord in the Holy Eucharist. And during this time, our Lord actually appeared to her and showed her his heart uh, burning with love. And he said, Behold this heart which has so loved men that it has spared nothing, even to exhausting and consuming itself in order to testify its love. In return, I receive from the greater part only ingratitude by their irreverence and sacrilege and by the coldness and contempt they have for me in this sacrament of love. And what is most painful to me is that there are, they are hearts consecrated to me. It is for this reason I ask thee that the first Friday after the octave of Corpus Christi be appropriated to a special feast in honor of my heart by communicating on that day, uh, in other words, receiving communion on that day and making reparation for the indignity that it has received. And I promise that my heart shall dilate to pour out abundantly the influences of its love on all that will render it this honor or procure its being rendered. So our Lord appeared to Margaret Mary Alacoque to say, um, I, you know, show her his heart and to say that although this heart, his heart is the source of our salvation, of, of all the, you know, this is this great fount of, of mercy and graces, um, and that in return he receives irreverence and sacrilege. And if that was true in the 1600s, it's certainly more true today. And he pointed out especially how hurtful it was for those who are, hearts are consecrated to him. He's talking about clergy and religious that are indifferent uh, and so forth. And again, if that was a problem then, uh, I'm afraid it hasn't gone away. Now, Margaret Mary uh, obeyed him, of course, but like with most new devotions, um, she really met with a great deal of opposition until ultimately she became the mistress of novices at the convent of the visitation. And she then, with the help of our good Lord, started to, to promote among the novices this devotion to the sacred heart of Jesus. And by, by so doing and through their example, she softened the hearts of the other sisters. And soon the entire convent was devoted to the sacred heart of Jesus. And then, of course, it spread uh, uh, from there into the adjoining diocese, by uh, the year 1726, so not a hundred years past, where there were already hundreds of confraternities to the Sacred Heart of Jesus, over 300 by the year 1726. And of course, uh, devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus spread throughout the entire church and all throughout the entire Catholic world uh, today. And um, Pope Clement XIII is the one who commanded the Feast of the Most Sacred Heart, uh, and that it would be celebrated throughout the entire church every year on the first Friday after the octave of Corpus Christi. So what is devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus, and what does it consist? Well, we'll begin with the object of the devotion, which, uh, and to begin with, you have to understand that we're not imagining something that's merely metaphorical. It's not just a, a, a painting or a picture. We're talking about the living heart of the God-man, our good Lord Jesus Christ uh, arose from the dead. He's in his glorified body. His actual physical heart uh, is beating for us right now. And it is, it is the, the, the center of all of his 
affections. It is the, the, the fountain of grace and, and of all these virtues. And of course, it is uh, the most powerful as well as the most touching symbol of his love, his infinite love for human beings. God so loved the world, etc. And, you know, the church, uh, we venerate the cross, we venerate the precious blood, we venerate uh, our Lord's sacred wounds, all these many things and others um, through masses and lessons and, uh, you know, offices in the uh, liturgy of the hours. And the whole point is that by meditating on these things, it's going to awaken us, awaken in us a more fervent devotion to our Lord and Redeemer. And how much more worthy then, this is according to Father uh, Goffin's explanation of the Epistles and Gospels, he says, how much more worthy uh, then of our devotion is the Sacred Heart of our Savior, since all its thoughts, movements, and affections aim at our salvation, and it is always ready to, per- to receive truly penitent sinners, to pardon them, to restore them again to God's favor, and to make them partakers of eternal happiness. Now we're going to see that in the in the uh, readings for the um, the feast and also the uh, third Sunday after Pentecost. Uh, the second thing uh, that I wanted to mention uh, this actually is taken from uh, the venerable P. Simon Jordan, and he actually uh, has a little essay with seven points regarding the excellence of the devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. First off, he says it is a holy devotion. Because in this devotion, um, we venerate in Christ those affections and motions of his heart by which he sanctified the church and glorified his heavenly Father and showed his me- uh, himself to men as a perfect example of the most sublime holiness. Second, he says, it is an ancient devotion of the Catholic Church, which, he says, instructed by St. Paul, the great apostle, has at all times acknowledged the great benefits uh, of the divine and sacred heart of Jesus. Number three, it's an approved devotion. And again, he's talking about before uh, Margaret Mary Alacoque, or even before uh, St. Gertrude and St. Bernard, going all the way back to Holy Scriptures. He says, everywhere in the Scriptures, we are admonished to renew the heart by changing our lives, to penetrate the heart with true contrition, to, to inflame our hearts with divine love, to adorn our hearts with a practice of virtue. He says, when therefore... Scripture promises us a new heart, he says, a new heart by which to direct our lives. He says that can be no other than the heart of Jesus, which is to us the pattern of all excellence and which we must follow if we would be saved. Number four, he says it's a perfect devotion as it is the origin of all others, right? If we see in the heart of Jesus this inexhaustible treasury of of graces, um, and virtues, he said, it's from here that the Blessed Mother and all the saints have, have derived their graces and their virtue and their life and their spiritual goods and filled with the treasures from uh, this source in the heart of Christ, uh, the different servants of God have instituted and established all of the devotions of the Catholic Church. So he's saying, really, that all of the devotions of the Catholic Church have their source in the Sacred Heart of Jesus. Okay, we're going to talk about the rest of Jordan's list and all the many other things that uh, I promised we would talk about when we return right here on No Nonsense Catholic. You are listening to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold. Glad to have you with us. We'll be right back after this.
Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Before I say another word, I have to um, clarify something I said in the first uh, segment. I said St. Margaret Mary Alacoque was not a saint. I meant, <laughs> I was referring to at the time that she was a visitation on, St. Margaret Mary Alacoque is most certainly a saint uh, of the Catholic Church today. So just wanted to, uh, to quickly uh, uh, correct that. I don't want to leave anybody with the impression that I don't think that uh, Margaret Mary Alacoque is a saint, because she most certainly is. Uh, okay, so we were talking about uh, Venerable Simon P. Jordan's um, little uh, list on the uh, excellence of the devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. And uh, we had said it's a, uh, he writes that it's an, a holy devotion, an ancient one, an approved devotion, a, a perfect devotion as the source uh, of all others, since the, the, the heart of Jesus is really the source of the grace and virtue of the saints who uh, established all the devotions in the church. And then um, point number five, he says, it is a profitable devotion, for thereby we have brought before our eyes the very fountain of life and grace and can draw directly from it, increasing in ourselves all virtues by adoring this divine heart, meditating on its holy affections, and endeavoring to imitate them. Yes, uh, devotion to the sacred heart of Jesus is very profitable in the spiritual life because it does embrace um, the, the affections and the movements of the heart of Jesus, which is, you know, that's, that is our faith. Um, number six, he says it's a devotion pleasing to God, because through this devotion we adore God as Christ requires it in spirit and in truth, serving him inwardly in our hearts and endeavoring to please him. And finally, number seven, he says it is a useful devotion, since its whole object is to unite us most intimately with Christ as members of him, uh, the head of the church, to make us live by and according to his spirit to have one heart and soul with him, and through grace finally to become one with him, which is and must be the object of all devotions. So Father Goffin says, uh, as this devotion is then so excellent, we cannot sufficiently recommend it to all who are anxious for their salvation. Now, uh, Father Goffin was writing in the, in the 19th century. Um, he says, Quote, while everyone can practice this devotion and adore the Sacred Heart of Jesus by himself, there is a greater blessing when pious souls unite and form a confraternity for practicing the devotion. He, we mentioned before, of such confraternities there were in the year 1726, more than 300. They are now established through all Catholic countries. Hesitate not, Christian soul, to engage in this devotion and to join in the adoration of that Sacred Heart of Jesus in which all men find propitiation uh, the pious, confidence, sinners, hope, the afflicted, consolation, the sick, support, the dying, refuge, and the elect, joy and delight. So <laughs> very clearly a devotion for everyone. Um, later on in the program, if, if time permits, I want to talk about the promises that our Lord made to St. Margaret Mary Alacoque in regard to um, those who are devoted to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. Uh, they are typically collated into um, 12 promises. There's a dozen promises uh, attached to this, and that's one of the reasons it's so very popular and so very effective. So going to take a look now at the Feast of the Sacred Heart of Jesus, the original one, the Feast in the Extraordinary Form. It begins with the introit of the Mass, which is taken from Lamentations 3 and from the Book of Psalms. Uh, it says, He will have mercy according to the multitude of his mercies, 
for he hath not willingly afflicted nor cast off the children of men. The Lord is good to them that hope in him, to the soul that seeketh him. Alleluia, alleluia. The mercies of the Lord I will sing forever to generation and generation. Grant, we beseech thee, Almighty God, that we who glorifying or glorying in the most sacred heart of thy Son commemorate the chief benefits of his charity towards us may equally rejoice in their acts and fruits through the same Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And then the call act grant, we beseech the Almighty God that we who glorying in this most sacred heart of thy Son commemorate the chief... Um, okay, I just, I'm sorry, I just read that. I don't know why it appeared twice in my notes, but there it is. That's the collect for um, Sacred Heart of Jesus. And then the epistle, which is taken from Isaiah uh, chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. I will give thanks to thee, O Lord, for thou wast angry with me. Thy wrath is turned away, and thou hast comforted me. Behold, God is my Savior. I will deal confidently and will not fear, because the Lord is my strength and my praise and he has become my salvation. You shall draw waters with joy out of the Savior's fountains, and you shall say in that day, Praise ye the Lord, and call upon his name. Make his inventions known among people. Remember that his name is high. Sing ye to the Lord, for he hath done great things. Show show this forth in all the earth. Rejoice and praise, O thou habitation of Zion, for great is he that is in the midst of thee the Holy One of Israel. You know what? I have to say something. I'm, I'm currently engaged in a massive project for um, the Augustine Institute. They're going to be launching a new app in a couple of months, and one of the features is going to be a uh, Bible in the Year, or Bible in a Year uh, feature. So you're going to be able to go on the app, and there's a reading from the Old Testament and the Psalms and one from the New Testament, um, for every day of the year. And in a year's time, if you, you know, uh, consult it every day, you will have listened to the entire Bible read out loud. Okay. And that's in the Catholic Bible. So that includes the Deuterocanon. And, um, they have engaged, uh, someone who was apparently willing to take on a project of this magnitude, which is yours truly. So I've been, um, uh, have been and will for the next uh, several months uh, been daily recording um, the Bible. And I have to say, the Augustine Institute has put out the, uh, a version of the Bible in a year that uses as the text the English Standard Version. English Standard Version, it's kind of like the RSV. All of these, anything that says Standard Version in it is actually a revision of the King James Bible. And so, of course, it is a Catholic version. Of course, it's imprimatur and all of that. And it's good, and it's um, considered very faithful. But I have to tell you that um, I, I've been reading the book of Isaiah, and when I read the epistle here from the Douay, I don't know, there's something about it. That, that translation just sings to me. And especially this passage from Isaiah, which is itself a song. It's, it's a, it is a song of gratitude for the deliverance of the Jews uh, from the hands of their enemies. And it's at the same time a prophecy of the coming redemption of mankind from sin and death through Jesus Christ. It says, you shall draw waters with joy out of the Savior's fountain. And these fountains are the graces which Christ obtained for us on the Holy Cross and which are communicated to the world through the sacraments of the Catholic Church. Uh, St. Augustine uh, said, 
particularly, uh, this is true of the holy sacraments of baptism and Eucharist, uh, and that we should rejoice over these sacraments, particularly that the Holy One of Israel, Jesus, the Son of God, is in the midst of Zion, which, spiritually speaking, is the Catholic Church, and that he is in the midst of Zion in the most holy sacrament of the Eucharist, where he will remain until and he comes again in glory until the end of time. So we should often approach, according to Augustine, we should often approach the ever-flowing fountain of all graces, the most holy Eucharist, and with confidence draw consolation, assistance, strength, and power from this fountain of love. Beautiful. And now the uh, gospel, according to John, from John 19, 31 through 35, and this is for the Feast of the Sacred Heart. At that time, the Jews, because it was the Perisive, that the bodies might not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that was a great Sabbath day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken, and that they might be taken away. The soldiers therefore came, and they broke the legs of the first, and of the other that was crucified with him. But after they were come to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers, with a spear, opened his side, and immediately there came out blood and water, and he saw it hath, uh, and he that saw it hath given testimony, and his testimony is true. That is Saint John saying, "I was an eyewitness. I know that this happened." Now we know that according to Jewish law, a criminal could not be put to death, uh, nor could the body of a criminal that had been executed remain in the place of execution on the Sabbath day. But, of course, we also know that in the first century, the Jews were under Roman occupation. They were under the Roman law. And so uh, they, they, they went to Pilate and asked that the legs of these uh, men be broken, the crucified men, so that they could be taken away, that they could be uh, buried. Uh, but before that could be done, of course, according to Roman law, can't take them down off the cross until you're sure they're dead. So... Um, they went with, um, and the way they did it was they would take an iron mace and break the knees of the crucified person. Because uh, the reason that crucifixion is such a terrible, agonizing death is that you're nailed to the cross, and because all your weight is you know, on your wrists, you have to pull yourself up in order to breathe. And of course, it's extremely painful, because the only way you can get any leverage is with the nails through your hands and feet. And so you can see you know, how terrible it is. And ultimately, you become so exhausted that you simply can't do it anymore, and then you die of asphyxiation. So um, to hasten death, they would break the, the knees of the crucified person so he wouldn't be able to hold himself up anymore, so that he would uh, you know, quickly suffocate. And they broke the legs of the two thieves, but when they came to Jesus, they saw he was already dead. But as we know uh, from the Scripture, they wanted to make sure that he was already dead. And so um, there was a soldier there who tradition tells us his name is Longinus, and he opened the side of Jesus with a spear, as had been predicted by the prophets. It was also, you know, it was because predicted by the prophets that not a bone of his would be broken. So that's why they didn't break his legs. Now, we know that when Longinus uh, placed the spear on the Lord's side, that out came blood and water. And the uh, uh, blood and water, you know, it's... Uh, what was happening at the temple at that very time is they were sacrificing the, the Paschal lambs. 
and putting the blood on the altar and then and then washing it off with water. And so from the side of the temple at Jerusalem, blood and water was flowing at that precise moment. And we know our Lord is the true temple. He told he told the uh, the, the Pharisees, tear down this temple, and in three days I will rebuild it. But they did not understand that he was speaking of the temple of his body. And so blood and water come forth from the side of Jesus as it was coming out of the the side of the temple uh, because of the sacrifices. And we know that um, the blood and water are representative of baptism and the Holy Eucharist. Those are the two sacraments that our Lord uh, associates most closely with salvation. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, he says. And, And unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in you right? Zoe in the Greek, eternal life. So um, uh, Longinus preaches his side with the spear, the blood and water come out, and according to tradition, some of that blood and water struck Longinus in the face, who had been blind in one eye and was immediately cured, and which probably helped uh, the other centurion to understand, truly this man was the Son of God. Okay, more on the Sacred Heart of Jesus when we come back with No-Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stick with us. We'll be right back after this. All right, talking about the readings for the Feast of the Sacred Heart of Jesus in the Extraordinary Form, we just... uh, went through the uh, gospel about our Lord's side being pierced on the Holy Cross. And why is it that our Lord would permit his side to be opened in this way? Well, there's a number of reasons. First off, it's to atone for uh, the sins which come forth from the hearts of men. As, uh, uh, let's see, uh, as Christ himself says, for from the heart come forth evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false testimonies, and blasphemies. It's from Matthew's Gospel. So first is to atone for the sins that come from the heart. Number two, to show the infinite love with which he first loved us and to which the spear should point us. This is Father Goffin again. I enjoy uh, the way he uh, puts things, that the spear is pointing us to his heart. Uh, Number three, uh, he allowed his most sacred heart to be opened to show that there was nothing so dear to him that he would not give it to us. Since for our salvation, he shed the last blood of his heart, the last drop of his heart's blood. And then number four, to provide, as it were, a door, an abode in his open side. Okay, according to the words of St. Augustine, quote, the evangelist is very cautious in his language. For he said not the soldier pierced or wounded his side, but he opened it, that thereby there might be opened to us the door from which flow into the church those holy sacraments without which we cannot enter into life. When temptation assails us or sorrow depresses us, let us flee to this abode and dwell therein until the storm is passed away. According to the words of the prophet, that is the prophet Isaiah, enter thou into the rock and hide thee in the pit. For what is the rock but Christ, and the pit but his wound? See, the wound in his side. Um, I wanted to also share with you a a quick prayer 
There, I mean, there are so many, and there's many, many ejaculations. You know, uh, most sacred heart of Jesus is a prayer all by itself. Most sacred heart of Jesus, make our hearts like unto thine. Sacred heart of Jesus, have mercy on me, etc., etc. But um, but there is a, a very brief prayer, and if you say this prayer before an image of the heart of Jesus, with contrition for your sins, you can gain a, a partial indulgence each time. Say it daily for a month under the usual conditions, and you can receive a plenary indulgence. All right. So I uh, and that is to say, you know, if you um, go to confession, receive communion, and pray for the intentions of the Church, uh, intentions of the Holy Father. Uh, you can receive this plenary indulgence if you say this prayer in front of an image of the Sacred Heart of Jesus once a day for a whole month. And here is the prayer, uh, and uh, it's very brief, but I've put it in the show notes. So when this uh, podcast gets posted um, on the website and so forth, you will be able to go into the notes and, uh, and see this prayer if you're interested. My loving Jesus, I give thee my heart, and I consecrate myself wholly to thee, that out of the grateful love I bear thee, and as a reparation for all my unfaithfulness, and that with thy aid I purpose never to sin again. Amen. All right, so there it is, uh, indulgence prayer to the Sacred Heart. Now, moving on to uh, this Sunday, we began the week with the third Sunday after Pentecost. Uh, And in the introit of this extraordinary form Mass, the Church invites sinners to call on the Lord with confidence and humility. And this is again taken from the Psalms. Look thou upon me and have mercy upon me, O Lord, for I am alone and poor. See my objection and my labor and forgive me all my sins, O my God. To thee, O Lord, have I lifted up my soul. In thee, O my God, I put my trust. Let me not be ashamed. And then the collect or opening prayer. O God, the protector of those who hope in thee, without whom nothing is strong, nothing is holy, Multiply thy mercy upon us, that under thy rule and guidance we may so pass through the goods of time as not to forfeit those of eternity. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So we have a a particular theme here of mercy and of turning to God and turning to his mercy, his rule and his guidance. And the epistle is taken from 1 Peter. Uh, This is 1 Peter 5, 6 through 11, and it'll be familiar to you. Dearly beloved, be you humbled under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in the time of visitation, casting all your care upon him, for he hath care of you. Be sober and watch, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, goeth about seeking whom he may devour. Whom resist ye, strong in faith, knowing that the same affliction befalleth your brethren who are in the world. But the, grace, er, but the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory in Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a little, will himself perfect you and confirm you and establish you. To him be glory and empire forever and ever. Amen. This, uh, of course, this epistle very famous. It's about resisting the devil. It's also about being vigilant. Uh, that's in, in my family's coat of arms. The Arnold uh, coat of arms. Our, our motto is "Watch and Live," right from the Latin. And and it's about being being vigilant and uh, being aware of your sinfulness and and the snares of the devil and achieving eternal life. And the the church 
um, traditionally, uh, pastors would preach a sermon. Um, the, the moral topic of the sermon would be the sin of intemperance because uh, St. Peter admonishes us to be sober and watch. Uh, he's, he, he prescribes these as necessary for resisting the attacks of the devil who goes about day and night uh, like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Woe to those, says Father Goffin, who by reason of their drunkenness live in a continual night and lie in the perpetual sleep of sin. How will it be with them if suddenly awakened from this sleep by death they find themselves standing, burdened with innumerable and unknown sins before the judgment seat of God? For who can number the sins committed in and by reason of drunkenness, which the drunkard either accounts as trifles, easily pardoned, or else, not knowing what he has thought, said, and done in his fits of intoxication, considers it to be no sins at all? Will the divine judge at the last day thus reckon? Will he also find no sin in them? Will he let go unpunished the infamous deeds and scandals of their drunkenness? He who demands strict account of every word spoken in vain, will he make no inquiry of so many shameful, scandalous, and blasphemous sayings, of so much time wasted, so much money squandered, so many neglects of um, the divine service, the education of children, the affairs of the home, and innumerable other sins? Will they be able to excuse themselves before this judge by saying that they did not know what they were doing? or that what they did was for want of reflection or in jest, or that they were not strong and could not bear much? Will not such excuses rather witness against them that they are more worthy of punishment for having taken more of their strength than their strength could bear, thereby depriving themselves of the use of reason, making themselves like brutes, and of their own free will, taking on themselves the responsibility for all the sins of which their drunkenness was the occasion? What then awaits them? What else than the fate of the rich glutton who for his gluttony was buried in hell? He's talking about the rich man and Lazarus and Luke. Yes, that shall be the place and the portion of the drunkard. There shall they in vain sigh for a drop of water. There, for all the pleasures and satisfactions which they had in the world, as many pains and torments shall now lay hold of them. And then he, he references the book of Apocalypse here, 13.7. Uh, where the devil is given, you know, the, the approval to punish. There shall, there shall they be compelled to drain the cup of God's anger to the dregs as they in life forced others into drunkenness. This is what they have hope, this is what they have to hope for. For St. Paul says expressly that drunkards shall not possess the kingdom of God. That's the, from that laundry list in 1 Corinthians 6. What then remains for them but to renounce either their intemperance or heaven. But how rare and difficult is the true conversion of a drunkard. This is the teaching of experience. Will not such a one therefore go to ruin? These, these are the words of, of Father Goffin from his uh, explanation of the Epistles and Gospels that was published at the end of the 19th century. I am willing to bet that uh, you have never heard <laughs> a sermon like that uh, on any Sunday in, in a Catholic church these days. Uh, really, really powerful stuff. And talking about the, the dangers. And you notice that he doesn't throw drink under the bus. What he throws under the bus is intemperance. 
right? We're not Puritans, but Catholics. Not saying that, that you know, the, the, the fruit of the vine is evil somehow. Our, our God himself chose that to be, um, you know, the medium by which he would, he would bring to us his uh, precious blood. Now, wine is not bad, but, you know, even strong drink. But intemperance is the problem. And, you know, it's one of those things. We, we're, we're told that we're a nation of addicts. You know, I, I um, got a, uh, pursued a certificate in Christian counseling back in 2005 is when I earned the certificate. And I had to study psychology. And, and psychologists tell us that, that we're a nation of addicts, that we're not just alcoholics, but, but foodaholics and shopaholics and rageaholics. And, and, uh, and uh, you know, we are, we're on our second or third generation of couch potatoes that are hopelessly addicted to the Internet. And, you know, vanity has reared its ugly head with the, the whole selfie culture. You've got these young people that, that have taken hundreds and, or thousands of photos of themselves to, to, you know, to share on the Internet and so forth. And, and I remember at the time thinking to myself, wait a second, you know, it's like lust and anger and, and greed and, and uh, sloth and, and drunkenness. It's the seven deadly sins. And that's the real pandemic because, you know, the, the seven deadly sins have not slowed down in the least. And I remember I have my own, uh, my own battle with this. When I was in my 20s, I was in a, a band. And, you know, I didn't just play on the weekends. I was employed every night. Um, in places that served alcohol. And I'm going to tell you about what happened uh, when we come back. I didn't realize the uh, clock was running out on this segment. We'll return in just a moment with lots more on the third Sunday after Pentecost, Sacred Heart of Jesus, and what happened to me uh, in regarding intemperance. When we come back with lots more no-nonsense Catholic right after this. So stay with us. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. We're talking about Father Goffins. I was actually sharing his uh, <clears throat> sermon for the third Sunday after Pentecost on the moral topic of the sin of intemperance, which is to say, you know, the, the sin of uh, drinking too much. And he really, I mean, it's very, very powerful. And in a way that uh, we don't address that, uh, that topic that way anymore. And as I mentioned before, the break, as I studied psychology, and I was taught that we're a nation of addicts, that we're addicted to all these things, uh, to uh, sex and drugs and, and uh, alcohol and shopping and, and uh, uh, so forth, and rage. And, and um, you know, we've got a whole generation of couch potatoes that are hopelessly addicted to, to the Internet and pornography and, and uh, video games and the diabolical rectangle that is the smartphone. And the, the fact of the matter is, though, that I, I identified those things with the seven deadly sins, and which is to say that this is a, a, an epidemic that has been with us uh, since the fall of man. And like the, the recent pandemic, we have a tendency to deal with it by putting a mask on rather than actually uh, trying to affect a cure. We try and hide it. Um, and I had my own issues with alcohol. And, um, you know, it, during the... the my 20s during that decade, I was a professional musician. As I was mentioning, I, you know, like I said, I wasn't a, a weekend warrior. I was working in nightclubs five hours a night, five and six nights a week, week after week, year after year for a whole decade. That was my, it was my soul living. And so I spent a lot of time around alcohol. 
And, and I started drinking. I drank quite a lot. And it, it didn't adversely affect my life all that much. Of course, I, I wasn't responsible for anyone but myself. And um, near the end of that uh, decade, I started dating this girl who would become uh, my wife. And she was the one that pointed out to me, she says, I had an alcoholic father, and, and I think that you're an alcoholic because you drink so much. And she pointed out just how many drinks I'd had in, uh, in a night. And my response was along the lines of Norm Peterson in, in uh, uh, Cheers. It's like, you know, I've already got a mom. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't need you telling me uh, that I drink too much. But, you know, the way the Lord works, um, it was not long after that. In fact, it was later that same week. I decided to stay after hours in the club with the, uh, the staff there and the owner and one of the other musicians that was in the band. And we just pounded shots of Jack Daniels and, and beer until maybe 6 o'clock in the morning. And I, I'm convinced I had alcohol poisoning. I was so dreadfully hungover for days. And, and I started paying attention to those Schick Center commercials that are going, hey, you know, do you drink alone? Do you, do you drink at work? Do you drink when you're not at work? Do you drink to have a good time? You know, if you'd answered yes to any of these questions, you know, you're an alcoholic. And I'm going, I answered yes to all those questions. And so um, I went back into the nightclub the following Tuesday. And, um, you know, it, it had been Saturday night that we had this big bacchanal. And, and, you know, 56 hours later, whatever it is, I'm, I'm back in this club and just the smell of alcohol. And normally you can't smell alcohol, but I sure could that day. And it just, and it made me nauseous. And everybody was trying to get me to have a drink in order to feel better. Hair of the dog, yes? Have another drink, you'll feel better. Have a drink, you'll feel better. Have a drink, have a drink, have a drink. And, and my kind of contrary nature kicked in, and I said, no, I'm not going to have a drink. What if I really am an alcoholic? What if I really am addicted? I've been drinking heavily for years, you know, every day for years. And, and I just stopped. I stopped drinking. And... um. Two years went by, I didn't have a drop. Now, when I proposed, I ordered a split of champagne. And I have been able to, you know, uh, I have drink. I drink socially. I'll have a drink with dinner and so forth. Um, but I never drink to excess. So I guess either I was never an alcoholic or uh, I was miraculously healed, one or the other. Because alcohol is simply not a problem in my life, and it is something, and I can take it or leave it at this juncture in my life. And it's a great blessing. But the point is that, that it is, you know, there is a moral component here. And I see it, especially in, um, in my life, because like I say, you wear a mask to hide your sins. Well, <laughs> um, since that time, since I've become a Catholic, I gained a hundred and some pounds. Right, I, I, I'm sitting here in front of a camera looking at myself in a monitor and I can see that I weigh 300 pounds. And, and so, and that tells me if I, and I look at these old, you know, I read this old sermon about drinking, but you can look at the, uh, what it says about gluttony. St. Thomas Aquinas tells you that if you eat beyond what you need to sustain your life, you're a glutton. Now, of course, there are many factors here, the genetics and so forth. I, you know, my wife, uh, started getting pregnant and having kids, uh, you know, six of them over the years. And I would gain the sympathy weight and she'd lose the weight after the kid was born, but I, but I didn't. And so when the next kid came, I just got heavier and I've been on the diet roller coaster for years, 20 some years I've been, uh, on diets. I, I've lost so much weight that if I had kept my weight off, you know, uh, all the weight that I, cause you lose 20 pounds and then put it back and you lose 40 pounds, but you put 60 pounds and you put it back on. That's why I call it a roller coaster. 
But if I'd lost all that weight, I would be at my original weight today, which is eight pounds, 11 ounces. <laughs> actually, I once tallied it up. I think I've actually lost something like 400 pounds uh, over the 20 years and then gained it all back. And I'm, you know, embarking on yet another. Uh, and I think one of the things that uh, is, is different, you know, because I, I, I quit smoking the same way. I just decided one day that I was going to quit and I did. And I quit drinking that way. I decided I'm not going to drink. Now, cigarettes and alcohol are a little different. When somebody lights up a cigarette around me, it's been, I don't know how long it's been, since the 80s. It's been a very long time, like, you know, close to 40 years when I quit smoking. But you know what? Somebody lights up a cigarette and I have the craving, you know? So that's something I know I, I, I really do. I have to stay away from. Although if I was, you know, with the condition of my body is in now, if I smoked a cigarette, I'd probably be really sorry. <laughs> but, um, uh, I guess the point that I'm trying to make here is that it's about, um, letting Christ take over your life. That we talk about, you know, Jesus being the Lord of your life. And I know that kind of sounds Protestant to, to, to Catholic ears. I mean, the Jesus, is Jesus the Lord of your life? But it really is important. You, you look at the Latin for, for Lord and the word is dominus. And that's where we get words like dominate and, and dominant and domineer. And that's the question. Does Christ really dominate my life? Is my every thought taken captive to Christ, like St. Paul says? And the answer to that question for me has to be no. Not in every respect. Not really. I'm working on it. I'm trying. I, I think that the, the Jesus is Lord of my business life. I think Jesus is Lord of, uh, you know, he's Lord in the bedroom. You know, and people have problems with these. They say, oh, yeah, Jesus is my Lord, and they go to communion and everything, but they're contracepting maybe or having sex outside of marriage or or maybe they're, yeah, they're indulging in business practices where they, they're trying to separate. Well, I'm a Christian, but, you know, business is business. Or or even in families where, where the dad says, hey, you know, yeah, Jesus is Lord, but but I'm the boss here. What I say goes. So in, in, in that respect, you know, Jesus really isn't Lord in those areas of your life. And I've had to admit that when I sit down at the table, sometimes the food is Lord. And that's a, and that's an ongoing thing. That is why we talk about working out our salvation and working out our salvation in fear and trembling because this is where the rubber meets the road. This is why devotion to our good Lord uh, is so important. And I, I, I mentioned... Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about St. Margaret Mary Alacoque and uh, give you a little uh, of her background. You know, she was born in 1647 in France. She was physically handicapped and uh, was cured miraculously through the intervention of the Blessed Virgin Mary and as a girl. And she promised that she would devote her life to Jesus in Thanksgiving. And she got all the way to 17 years old and our Lord appeared to her and he appeared to her as he appeared directly after his scourging, all bloody with uh, you know, uh, the, the marks of the, of the scourging. And she immediately entered into the order of the visitation. She, as I mentioned at the top of the show, loved our Lord and the Blessed Sacrament very much. And he showed her his sacred heart in four different visions. And, you know, the sacred heart, you know, the emblem, it's a heart and there's flames issuing from the top, and then it's surrounded by a crown of thorns uh, with blood dripping from it. And it's to remind us of his burning love for us, his desire that we would love him in return, 
And that crown of thorns reminds of his, of his sacrifice, which was to make up for our sins. And he made many promises to, to St. Margaret Mary, and uh, they are generally grouped as 12, and I just want to share them with you uh, before the end of the show here. The 12 promises of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. I will give to my faithful all the graces necessary in their state of life. Number one. Number two, I will bring peace to their homes. Number three, I will comfort them in their sufferings. Number four, I will be their safe refuge against all the snares of their enemies in life and above all in death. Number five, I will bestow abundant blessings upon all their undertakings. Number six, sinners shall find in my heart the source and the infinite ocean of mercy. Number seven, fervent souls shall mount to high perfection. Number eight, pardon me, I will bless every home in which an image of my heart will be honored. Number nine, tepid souls shall become fervent. Number ten, I will give to priests the gift of touching the most hardened hearts. Number eleven, to those who promote this devotion, those who promote this devotion shall have their names written in my heart, never to be effaced. And then number twelve, to all those who receive communion on the first Friday of the month for nine consecutive months, I will grant the grace of final repentance. How extremely important that is. All right. Um, I, you know, I don't have the time to go through all of these, and I wish I could. But I just want to take uh, a glance at the seventh promise, that fervent souls shall mount to high perfection. And this, of course, this is the sine qua non of the, of the Christian life. We, we want to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Vatican II calls it the, the universal call to holiness. And we find uh, our guide there in the Sacred Heart of Jesus that he revealed through the Beatitudes, that without his grace we can't be holy. And so we want to ask him to help us to be poor in spirit, to be, to be meek and overcome our anger, to hunger and thirst for holiness, to be merciful to our neighbors so that we can enjoy his mercy, to be pure of heart so that we can see God, to be peacemakers by keeping peace uh, with ourselves, with others, and most especially with him. He also said, I'll bring peace to their homes. That was his parting gift to the apostles. Peace, I leave you. My peace, I give you. Not as the world gives it. He gives us the peace that surpasses all understanding. And that is a gift of his grace that we receive through devotion to his sacred heart. And that's no nonsense. Hey, Matthew Arnold here for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Thank you so much for being with us today. I know that there was kind of a lot, and I appreciate you um, joining me so I can share these things with you. And I look forward to uh, next week. And until then, thank you very much for listening. Thanks for your prayers and support. And may God richly bless you and your family.